today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. Isn't this, in the context of marriage, what we do? Husband and wife, we go back and forth. Oh, would to God that, especially as husbands, because we want to be the spiritual leaders, well, why don't you take the lead then and set the example and say to your wife, honey, you don't know the half of it, you're right, and humble yourself and watch how quickly that fight dissipates and evaporates. It's hard to fight when somebody humbles themselves, right? We're prone to getting into fights, whether in our families or in our relationships. We extend the argument by digging up the past due to a lack of humility. Today, Pastor J.D. talks about how you can use humility in your life to avoid arguments. You could avoid sin through your words if you choose to remain humble. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the Inspired and Truth podcast or download the Inspired and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. But for now, here's Pastor JD in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3, with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. Verse 4 Will you not from this time? Cry to me, my father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he, verse 5, remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. What? What does that mean? Oh, They were sinning as much as they were able to sin. Remember now, we just got done reading that they were actually looking for sin, looking for ways in which they would be able to sin. And here again, God is, just come back to me, cry out to me, return to me. Yeah, but... Lord, they've done evil, wicked, unspeakable things that are just so evil you cannot even speak of them. I know, but I want them to come back to me. I'll take them back. The Lord said also to me, verse 6, in the days of Josiah the king, hang on to that, we're going to come back to that's going to come into play. Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree and played the harlot. I was praying about this in anticipation of teaching this, but I I want to be prudent, but I don't want to go to the other extreme and sanitize the strength out of it. But this is speaking directly to the the sexual practices of these pagan gods in their worship. And this is specifically where these acts would take place. And this is why God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is making mention of them. It was gross sexual immorality, and they had committed these abominable acts, and evil and wickedness in the sight of the Lord, and even the location in which they would practice this. And verse 7 I said, after she had done all these things, return to me, 
but she did not return. This is speaking now again of northern Israel, which, by the way, has already been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. In fact, it's believed that at the time of this prophecy from Jeremiah, a hundred years had already passed. So God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is bringing up Israel to Judah. And here's why. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. They were there. They saw their sister, as they're referenced here. They saw their sister in the northern kingdom of Israel commit the same abominable acts. And here God had extended the same invitation to Israel. Return to me. But Israel didn't. And look at the consequences of what happened to them. Verse 8, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Okay, bear with me. This is again very important. It speaks to a very powerful principle. And I want you to think this through with me. So, and we're going to see this even more graphically in a moment, but Judah, this treacherous sister Judah, this treacherous sister of the northern kingdom of Israel, saw what had happened, and they didn't learn from it. This is that adage of old, learning the lessons of history, learning not to repeat history. Well, Judah, this treacherous sister Judah, was repeating the same exact sins that the northern kingdom of Israel had done. Listen, I say this very candidly. I would much rather learn from your mistakes than having to learn them firsthand. I would much rather, and please I say this in love, I would much rather see you suffer the consequences of your sin and learn that way and not repeat that sin seeing you. <laughs> That's horrible, isn't it? <laughs> in other words, and here's why, by the way, our sin always looks worse on someone else than on ourselves. Oh, come on. Didn't Jesus talk about that? Here's this guy going, oh, it looks like you have a speck of sin in your eye. Really? How do you know? I'll tell you why you know. Because the beam from which that speck in your brother's eye came from is in your eye. Maybe Mobeta, you remove the <laughs> beam from your own eye so that you can see that speck. It's just a little speck. But oh, we'll point it out, won't we? You know when someone says, oh man, they're so full of pride. How do you know? How do you know what pride looks like? I'll tell you why you know what pride looks like. Because you have a degree in pride. You know what pride smells like because <laughs> you got the smell of on de pew. 
of pride on you. How do you know? It takes one to know one, we say. How do you know what pride looks like? The reason why you know what pride looks like is because you're full of pride in spades. Reminds me of a true story, actually. Stanley Volk, he's with the Lord now. He shared this at a conference. I'll never forget it. He uh, had somebody after one of his sermons come up to him and say to him, and a pastor will really appreciate this, Pastor, you are so full of pride. And this was his response. Brother, you don't know the half of it. Oh my goodness, totally disarmed the guy. I mean, them are fighting words. I am so full of, me, what about you? Pride. I mean, and and isn't this in the context of marriage, what we do, husband and wife, we go back and forth. Oh, would to God that, especially as husbands, because we want to be the spiritual leaders, well, why don't you take the lead then and set the example and say to your wife, honey, you don't know the half of it, you're right, and humble yourself. And watch how quickly that fight dissipates and evaporates. It's hard to fight when somebody humbles themselves, right? Reminds me of another story. (laughs) Just bear with me. This is a good one. I haven't shared it in a while, so I'm going to share it. So this husband and wife make an agreement with each other that they will not let the sun go down on their anger. So they're going at it, man. They're just having a knockdown drag out there, fighting, going back and forth, arguing. And they don't want to go to bed angry, because you know how that stews. You wake up in the morning and... I mean, you've had all night that. Don't let the sun go. You give the devil a foothold when you do that, by the way. So they made a commitment that we will agree to disagree, and we will not go to bed angry. Okay? So sometimes it's two o'clock in the morning, and the husband will say something like, sure enough, she'll come crawling to me on her hands and knees, and she'll say to me, Come out from underneath that bed and fight like a man, you coward! (laughs) Pastors and pastor's wives don't fight, by the way. As one pastor said, pastors and their wives have intense fellowship. There's actually a profound principle here that I want to get back to, and I, I know I digress a little bit, but it's learning from history, the lessons of history. So you see what happened to your brethren in the north, and they were taken captive by the Assyrians, and you're not going to learn from that. In fact, worse yet, you're going to replicate that and sin that sin. And actually, sadly, the southern Judah would be taken captive, not by the Assyrians, but by the Babylonians. It really speaks to this principle of learning the lessons of history. So it came to pass, verse 9, through her casual harlotry, they made light of it, that's no big deal, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Now that's, again, I'm going to be prudent about that. Pretty graphic though. 
And verse 10, yet for all this, here it is again, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself, listen to this, more righteous than treacherous Judah. (laughs) Wait, what? Isn't that backwards? No. This is breathtaking. You mean to tell me that Israel, as keep in mind now, Israel had no good king. There was not one good king in the northern tribes of Israel that did right in the sight of the Lord. Every king in northern Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Only Judah had good kings, and only nine at that. And this is where Josiah comes back into the picture. He was one of only nine good kings at the time. But that was to benefit Judah. Judah also had the temple, not the northern kingdoms. And Judah also had the benefit of seeing what happened to Israel a hundred years ago. So for God to say through Jeremiah that actually Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah, what he's saying is that Judah outwardly, it's all pretense. Oh, outwardly they they look like they're more spiritual and righteous than northern Israel. But at least with Israel, they weren't being hypocritical about it. They were pretty overt about their sin. But with Judah, they were actually presenting themselves as being righteous outwardly, when inwardly they were not righteous, but treacherous. It is the height of hypocrisy. And Judah was more accountable then was Israel for the reasons I just mentioned. Israel didn't have the benefit of seeing what happened, the consequences that Judah suffered. It's the other way around. So they're more accountable. Northern Israel didn't have the temple. Northern Israel didn't have good kings. Northern Israel didn't have a King Josiah. You know, (laughs) Northern Israel had was Ahab. How's that one? That explains a lot right there. Go, verse 12 and proclaim these words toward the north, and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. That's all you got to do. That you have transgressed against the Lord your God. That's all you got to do and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. So all you got to do is just come to me and confess your sin. And by the way, this is probably as good of a time as any to qualify what it means to confess. Never imagine that confessing your sin is, oh Lord, I'm sorry. Because you understand there's two kinds of sorrow. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, delineates 
between the godly sorrow that leads to true repentance, and then worldly sorrow, which is basically you're sorry you got caught. And the godly sorrow that leads to a genuine repentance, change, that's godly sorrow. It's the sorrow that confesses sin as sin. That's what that means. You're confessing to a holy God that you've sinned. I confess this sin as sin, because see, <laughs> we're really good at not calling sin, sin. We call it something else, just to kind of take the edge off of it. So we don't call adultery, adultery, we call it an affair. It just sounds more palatable, more amicable, more plausible, right? No. See, if you won't confess that sin as sin, then it's hands off for a God who is longing at the ready to forgive that sin. First John 1 John 1.9, it's been affectionately referred to as the Christian bar of soap. I love this verse. If we confess our sins, that's all we got to do. That's all you got to do, Israel, Judah. If you just will confess your sins, John says, He is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Oh, you got, this is a good deal. This is a two for one deal. All we have to do is one thing, confess, and he does two things. That's a good deal. Two for one, right? He forgives instantly and cleanses, purifies us. All we have to do is confess. Let's talk about returning, repenting. So it's to do a 180. It's to have a change of mind, a change of direction, so that God can change your heart. He does the work in you, but He will never override you. When there's a genuine repentance that's birthed out of a godly sorrow, and you come to the Lord and you say, Lord, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against you. That's all you got to do. You don't have to, you know, pay for it. It's already been paid for. He paid for it. And don't let the enemy lie to you and say to you, man, you're gonna, that's going to cost you. What do you mean? What are you talking about? The cost has already been paid. And never let the enemy lie to you and say to you, man, that was, that was, whoo, that was, wow, wow. You know, I'd lay low for a while on that one. I mean, it's going to take the Lord a few days. I mean, I wouldn't ask for forgiveness right away, especially because I think I remember that you made a vow that you would never do that again. And, and you did it. And I just, I don't know, I see Satan will do everything he can to keep you from the cross, where that sin that you sinned was paid for. He doesn't want you, he wants to keep you as Romans 6.14 says, Paul writing to the church in Rome, he wants to dominate and master us and crush us under the weight of the guilt and condemnation of our sin. 
And Paul says, sin will no longer have dominion over me. That is not the temptation to sin, which is not sin. Because if temptation were sin, and this is even hard to say, Jesus was tempted. This is not temptation. We're always going to have temptation this side of glory. The temptation to sin, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying it's the guilt and condemnation of sin that will no longer dominate me and master me and enslave me and keep me from the cross where forgiveness awaits. I need no longer be under the weight of that sin than it takes me to get to the cross. And Satan puts up all the roadblocks. I don't know, not so fast. Not not this time, man. I just kind of, you know, I just give God some, you know, time to cool down because he's he's had it with you on this one. I, I'm just saying, I sure wouldn't go to church. My goodness, if the person sitting next to you, look at the person sitting next to you when I say this, but if they knew what you did, you know what, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, because all this is going to do is just make it worse, because this is going to show you your sin in 3D IMAX. <laughs> and the technology is even more intense than that now. So he wants to keep you out of the Word, he wants to keep you away from the cross, and he certainly wants to keep you out of fellowship. It's been rightly said that sin will keep you from the Bible, and the Bible will keep you from sin. David said it in the Psalms, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you, O Lord. And Satan knows that. And make no mistake about it, he knows the Scriptures better than you and I ever will. He knows Scripture, and he knows how to just kind of tweak it just a little bit. Nothing new. I mean, he did it with Eve. He just kind of repackaged it. I mean, why fix it if it's not broken? If it works, keep doing it. I mean, and it works, and he, he keeps doing it <laughs> all the time. We keep falling for it, don't we? Comes to us, and he wants to keep us away from Jesus and forgiveness. Verse 14, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you. I'll take you back. One from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And verse 15, I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. Well now, what's this a reference to? It's believed that it could be referring to the kingdom age, the millennium, when Israel will ultimately be restored. Verse 17, at that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. 
We're so glad you joined us for this edition of In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. The book of Jeremiah is one of those books that's not the easiest to walk through in the Old Testament. It's almost like you see the train wreck that's up ahead and you want to warn them, but they just don't listen. Then you have other verses in this book that are commonly claimed, but what does it really mean in the context of what's going on? Jeremiah 29 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. But if you're looking at the train wreck up ahead, you wonder, how does claiming that verse fit with exile and judgment? Ultimately, God's plan and purpose are to bring people back to himself in reliance and dependence on him, not in their own possessions or their comfort. The same could be said for you today. You may be going through something that seems like judgment or exile, but are you drawing closer to the Lord in the process? There's a future and a hope, but it may play out differently than you'd like. If you're just getting into this study and want to listen to other teachings from Jeremiah, go to calvarychapelkaneohe.com to find these messages. There are a variety of additional resources on our website. Until we meet again, we encourage you to dive deep into God's Word and then come back for our next edition where Pastor J.D. will continue on in the book of Jeremiah. We look forward to that time with you here on In Spirit and Truth.